This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, this uh, discussion is sponsored by Ethics and Society. Uh, where's Joan? Joan is here, and Deborah. I saw Deborah, and Deborah's right there. If you want more information, I'm sure they'll be glad to give you such information. Uh, the panel for today uh, uh, is made up of uh, myself, uh, Heather and Mark. I'll give uh, introductions very briefly. Uh, and uh, the challenge is for us to lay out some issues around charter schools and hear more about particular approaches of charter schools and, uh, and then have a, a discussion of which I will uh, moderate uh, that. Uh, <clears throat> I am a, a professor emeritus uh, in the School of Education and I've been uh, retired uh, uh, almost five years and I teach one course uh, each quarter and I'm teaching a course uh, uh, this quarter and uh, that's, I guess that's why I'm here. Um, uh, Heather, uh, Heather Kirkpatrick uh, is a, a Stanford grad and I, and I say that with great pride, since uh, I worked very closely with Heather. <laughs> She's Director of Professional Development and Partnerships for Aspire Public Schools. She's also Associate Director of the Woodrow Wilson Fellowship Foundation, uh, which is involved with the early college high school. Uh, she has overseen a portfolio of Aspire Secondary Schools in East Palo Alto, uh, in Oakland, and in Stockton and has planned and designed uh, some of those schools and other schools for Aspire. She also was a high school teacher uh, at Erasmus Hall in Brooklyn uh, for uh, a number of years, four years, five years. Uh, Mark, uh, I have it right here, Mark. There it is. Uh, Mark Kushner is founder and CEO of Leadership Public Schools. He was the uh, founder and initial principal at Leadership High School in San Francisco and uh, one of the first charter schools in the state. He also serves as a member of the California Advisory Commission on Charter Schools, which advises the State Board of Education <coughs> on all charter matters, which makes recommendations regarding the granting of state charters, which is very important. He is a former attorney, high school uh, English teacher, and soccer and tennis coach. Now the format uh, for the time that we have is that I will offer a few remarks on charter schools, their origin, spread, and some abiding issues. Heather will speak about Aspire, uh, which is an educational management organization for about 10 to 15 minutes, and Mark will speak for the same amount of time about the network of leadership schools that he has founded. After they finish, I will ask a few questions to kick off a general discussion between you and the panel members and among, amongst ourselves. So let me begin. First, about the origin and spread of charter schools. I have no information about uh, uh, the knowledge base about charter schools, so for those that know far more than I, just uh, take a nap. But uh, uh, I won't be long. A charter school is a publicly funded school operated by private groups of teachers, parents, 
EMOs, educational management organizations, universities, unions, or others that are accountable to a school district, city, state, or whomever chartered the school. The charter school can be a startup, a new one, or converted from a regular public school that offers a choice to parents who don't want to send their child to the neighborhood public school. The first charter school law uh, was passed in Minnesota in 1991. Now, 40 states plus the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico have such laws. In 2005, there were nearly 3,500 charter schools, mostly elementary, enrolling over 1 million students, or about 2% of all U.S. students. Nationally, more blacks than whites enroll in charters than public schools. In California, there are nearly 600 charters with over 200,000 students, the largest enrollment in the nation. Some urban districts have substantial portions of their enrollment in charter schools. Dayton, Ohio has 25% of its students enrolled in charter schools. Washington, D.C. has 21% and Detroit, 15%. Public funding for charter schools sticks to the principle that money follows students, public money follows students. In California, state formulas pay charter schools for each student on the basis of school attendance. Three years ago, the per pupil grant to a charter elementary school averaged about $4,500. I'm sure it's changed since then. Now, <laughs> what kind of thinking has pushed this reform along so swiftly in just over a decade. Variations of arguments for charter schools in Minnesota in the early 1990s and in every state and district since has the following components to the argument for charter schools. And it goes like this. Because public schools are a monopoly, anti-competitive and bureaucratically stagnant, teachers have few incentives to teach effectively, and students in public schools fail to do well academically. Were schools to be autonomous, and were parents to have real choices of where to send their children, both teachers and students would have incentives to teach and learn more, faster, and better. The staff of schools receiving a charter would have the freedom, the autonomy, the discretion, the incentives to create schools that would be innovative, and give parents choices that they now lack. Such charter schools free of regulations binding public schools would produce higher quality instruction, better curriculum, improved organization and governance than exists in regular public schools. Such charter schools would be more accountable than regular public schools because they would not only have to satisfy parent and student demands, as well as their performance contracts with the district or the chartering authority. Finally, this combination of autonomy, innovation, and accountability would lead to improved student achievement, student and parent satisfaction, and push the rest of the district to improve its regular schools. As I read the charter school legislation and the charter school advocates, those are the chief components of the arguments that they have made over the years. So with that as a kind of general background, I now turn it over to Heather. Uh, so I'm going to speak specifically about Aspire. Um, Aspire Public Schools started about eight years ago 
1998, and the mission then, as now, was to open a dozens of public charter schools across the state of California and help ensure that more kids got, get to go to college than may otherwise have an opportunity to do so. Um, I think Aspire's story captures two things about charter schools in general that are interesting, um, promising, and maybe even sort of exciting uh, about charter schools. The first is that Aspire attracts people who typically may not have gone into public school education and people who maybe wouldn't have stayed in public school education had they, had they started there. Second, I think, um, Aspire understands and has really acted on the understanding that educational, business, and political savvy, all three are really essential to the development of effective and sustainable public schools. Um, Larry has written at length about the um, perils of public schools following too closely in business's footsteps. So he can speak a little bit more about that. But I think that the business practices that Aspire has taken on um, have benefited Aspire as an organization enormously. And I should say up front, I come from a very strictly education background. When I first started working at Aspire um, six years ago, uh, I was very wary, very dubious of the, of the entire business side of the house. I was, you know, they're a little slick. Maybe they're not in this for the right reasons. They certainly don't know anything about education. Um, and in the past six years, I have come to learn an enormous amount of things from the business side of the house, and I think obviously they've been an, an important part, and the hybrid has made us better and stronger. Um, why I think Aspire attracts and retains people who maybe wouldn't be attracted and stay in public school education has in part to do with the, sort of the notion of charter schools as, as new possibilities, as opportunities for people with ideas, as um, energy and, and uh, opportunity, just sort of this, this notion surrounds them. Um, and so I think we ended up attracting them partly just because of that. I think in part we retain um, a lot of our teachers because Aspire is growing fast. We open two to four schools each year. And what that means, these are small schools, um, but what that means is there are opportunities for teachers to move up, move over, move around in the organization uh, at a pace that isn't likely or, or, or typical of, of traditional public school organizations. Um, and thirdly, I think Aspire sort of focus on um, on outcomes, on data, on getting better all the time, on recognizing that, that we need to get better is an exciting sort of place and, um, and attracts and retains people who, who want to be part of something that's really effective. So the reason I think that Aspire works uh, in the three areas that it does around business, politics, and education has in part to do with our founder, Don Shalvey. He's the CEO, and many of you may have heard him speak or know him personally. He's incredibly charismatic. He's not only an educator, uh, he's also an entrepreneur. He's uh, dedicated his entire life to public school education. He really knows what he's talking about in terms of teaching and learning. And he also has the mind, an, an incredibly innovative mind. To sit across from the table from, from Don is in, and to watch him puzzle through something is, is really something. Uh, Another reason I think that Aspire works in these three areas and has brought these three sort of aspects into its work has to do with when Aspire was developing. 
So Silicon Valley was in its heyday. We were, at that time, our home offices were in um, San Carlos. We were in the thick of it. The ideas, the words, the language of, of Silicon Valley at that time really permeated Aspire in its developmental years. Um, uh, return on investment, good to great, a balanced scorecard, laser beam focus on outcomes, um, uh, 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 branding, all these things that typically are not associated with the development of public schools really came to be embodied by, by our work at Aspire. Um, New Schools Venture Fund uh, really cut its teeth on Aspire in, it, in, in the beginning. Uh, it, it's, for those of you who aren't familiar, it was one of the earliest and defining venture philanthropies. And, and uh, we received a, a significant amount of funding from them and they really developed their processes through us. We sort of grew up together. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation gave one of its earliest education grants to Aspire in fact, when we, um, when we wrote the grant proposal to the Gates Foundation, Tom Vanderark, the man who runs the education side of the house there, just said to Don, write me something. So we wrote him something and we got a million dollar grant. Um, of course, since then, the Gates Foundation and the New Schools Venture Fund have become very formalized, very clear, very um, thoughtful and, and everything's lovely and streamlined at both organizations now. And all of this really is just to say that Aspire grew up. Don was part of the initial team that uh, helped to write the legislation that passed charter schools. He opened the first charter in California. And he was doing all of this and then Aspire, opening Aspire in the midst of, of Silicon Valley at, at that time. So I think charter schools across the state and across the nation, they've been opened, as Larry suggested, by parents, by teachers, by community members, all incredibly uh, well-intentioned and many times with terrific and <laughs> tremendous results. Uh, but by but what I'm trying to say is I think a lot of charter schools are vulnerable when they don't bring to bear these three aspects of what it means to be engaged in this work. Um, I'll say very briefly, I don't think all charters are good. The research is clearly incredibly mixed. Um, I don't think all schools need to be small to be good. You know, no, there is no one truism. The closest I think there is to a truism around the charter schools is, is the intent of the legislation. And I think that the intent of the legislation really was, as Larry suggested, to provide an accountability lever. Um, and that lever, in order for, for this legislation to be operative and to be good, that lever has to be well utilized. So when a charter organization brings a charter to a school board, a district, or the state, it is upon that school board to, be, to do due diligence and to figure out, is this an organization that's going to be able to pull this off? Is this a charter that explains to us what we need to know in order for us to believe that this is going to result in a good public school? So it's on the district and the state at the front end, and then as well at the back end, if that charter if that public school that the district has chartered does not come through with its promises to families and to kids, it is upon that district and the state, or the state, depending on who uh, granted the charter, to revoke it. So the legislation needs to be utilized in order for, I think, its best intent to, to be understood or realized. Um, broadly, there may be some distinctions that are useful. Um, there are individual standalone charters, so downtown college prep in San Jose, Summit in Redwood City. These are schools that set out to open on their own and to really 
purposely be standalone, to give them the most uh, agility, I suppose is, is an appropriate word. Um, then there are schools that are part of networks or coalitions. So the KIPP schools, the high-tech high schools, the big picture company uh, based on the Met out in Rhode Island. These are um, schools that are not owned and operated by these parent companies, but they buy into the philosophy of these parent companies and they, they pay for or negotiate, I'm not exactly sure what the relationship is, um, for all the professional development to come out of these parent organizations. And out of high-tech high, they even go so far as they do tremendous, there's a, just an amazing man there um, uh, who provides architectural guidance and helps them think about what would it mean to design a building that really lives up to the notions of the school. Then there are organizations that support charter schools, so the California, and I think somebody may be here today from the California Charter Schools Association, New American Schools, these are organizations that aren't charters but end up acting to serve the, the interests of charters. And then finally there are um, charter management organizations or EMOs, CMOs, Larry called them education management organizations, and that's what Aspire is. These are organizations that um, have a disparate, spread out geographically schools all over. So in California, for Aspire, it's only throughout California. Um, and then there's one central or home office. And that home office acts largely as a traditional district would in that we provide the legal counsel. We do all of the professional development out of that office, the educational guidelines, the curricular guidelines, instructional guidelines, uh, the coaches, the accounts payable, benefits, payroll, la 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 la. This is out of the home office. Um, and I think the trick for CMOs and EMOs is to not become what we set out to defy. So on the one hand, uh, there are economic efficiencies that we're, that we're trying to recognize through this model by having a central home office and not making each individual school hire its own legal counsel or hire its own payroll person. There are economic efficiencies we want to recognize. Um, there are also quality control issues that we're trying to get our hands around through this model. On the flip side of that, the thing that has to be kept in check is we don't want to fall into the same bureaucratic situation and pitfalls that a lot of public schools, districts, home offices end up falling into. Uh, so about Aspire in particular, currently there are 14 public uh, charter schools that we run and operate. Five are in Oakland, four are in Stockton, uh, two in Modesto, one in LA, one in Sacramento, and one in EPA. Ultimately we seek to open 50 in the state of California. Um, Aspire's education model is not radical or radically different. The school day is somewhat longer. The school year is somewhat longer. Um, <coughs> teachers, there's a very clear and purposeful time set aside during the summers and every week on Wednesdays for teachers to collaborate. So every Wednesday from 1 o'clock to 3, 4, 5, 6 o'clock, every teacher at Aspire is in an, uh, a collaborative situation where they're either working with teachers at their site or across networks. Um, the schools are purposely small. Students do loop in the younger grades and stay with the teacher for the same two years. And in the upper grades, students stay with their advisor for anywhere from two to seven years. Um, but none of this is, is especially unusual. Um, and it is in the purpose of getting more kids into college than may have ended up there otherwise. And in pursuit of this, recently Aspire has started collaborating. Gates has given enormous amounts of funding out, of course, um, 
some of that funding has gone to intermediate organizations like Woodrow Wilson, and Woodrow Wilson is giving this money to universities to help them open early college high schools. And I can say more about these at a, another time if you're interested. But essentially, early college high schools are opportunities. Aspire's working with Berkeley, Stanislaus, and Davis on this on early college high schools in those geographic areas. And there will be more, I expect, relationships to come. But the purpose of early college high schools is to engage kids to literally make it uh, mandatory for students to graduate from high school with anywhere from 15 to 60 college credits by the time they graduate. And this is targeted. All of Gates funding is targeted at um, at serving a population of kids who would not have otherwise likely gone to college. And the idea, of course, is that if they can get through some college coursework, even very significant college coursework, by the time they graduate high school, they're much more likely to believe they can do it, they can certainly afford it if they transfer credits in, et cetera. So I'll end by saying I think Aspire's results to date are impressive. Um, there's a wait list at all of the schools, and as Larry suggested, this is indicative. You know, it's not a you're not bound to your charter school. You can take, pick up, and leave anytime you want. Um, so we have long wait lists at all of the schools. We've met our target. The state has a target API or a target. I don't know how much you know about this, but uh, you have to have grown by so much. Um, and we've exceeded that by eight times average at our schools across sites last year. Um, teacher and parent satisfaction surveys are really high. And in general, it's an exciting and uh, vibrant place to work. And I think it represents a lot of what is good about charter schools. Thank you, Heather. Go ahead, Mark. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Actually, are there enough seats to need people OK? Are there any open seats? Anybody? Raise your hand to come in. Um, so I feel really honored to be on this panel of Larry, Professor Cuban, because a number of his books really affected me. As I first started thinking about years ago, this was not planned, um, about pedagogy, just about how teachers taught and kind of innovations in the classroom, which ultimately we have to really look into regardless of the organizations that we build. It's really what's going on in the classroom. And so that may not be the main topic today, but that is where I spent a huge amount of my time thinking about. Um, secondly, uh, uh, Heather, early on, we're thinking about how high schools can be structured at scale. I really just valued the conversations with her. Um, uh, that being said, they've kind of set the context. I think I'm going to not talk about leadership public schools, maybe a couple minutes, but mainly talk about shaking things up a little bit and where I see the charter school movement, where it's been, and where it's heading. I think I'm just going to go off, off topic a little bit because I think it actually is the topic of the day. Um, now that we have that context. And a full disclosure also, I'm teaching a class at the uh, Ed School and Business School this, uh, this term uh, called School Choice, Threat or Opportunity. And uh, if it follows Stanford rules, you're welcome to come by and listen in or audit or whatever, whatever if you're interested. We have some pretty interesting speakers. So first of all, I want to know who's in the room a little bit so I kind of know a little, little insight into what you might be interested in. How many grad students are in here? Okay, fair amount. How many from the education side? On the grad students? How many from the business side? Okay. How many from other departments? Okay, great. Welcome. How many um, professors are in here? Okay, a little flavor for that. Welcome. Great. I look forward to being challenged on some of the points I say soon. Um, grad students will challenge you. Okay, good. Good. That's great. Uh, I, I, I love that. Um, how about we have some district folks, I think, in here, superintendents and perhaps school board members? Uh, welcome. I'm really glad you're here because. Uh, uh, last uh, year, I spent six months with Sheila Jordan over in Alameda County, really looking at 
with folks from all the constituencies, from the union, from the district, from the county, from the state, and from charter groups, and I really became much more sympathetic and understanding of the challenges that superintendents and school boards have. And if we're going to help all the kids in this state, we need to understand all the different perspectives. So, so glad that, that you folks are here as well. Um, who did I miss? How many teachers in the room? Any teachers in the room? They're all teachers. They're working. They're all, they're all working. That's right. Good point. Um, there's an ethics issue right there. Uh, undergrads. Undergrads. How many undergrads? Got a few of those. Great. Sorry to uh, uh, exclude you. And other staff. Fantastic. What other groups have I missed? Parents. Parents. Fantastic. I didn't expect that. It's great to have you here. Um, so, so. Let me set a few uh, uh, context things about, about charter schools. And, and a lot of it, what I've learned, is partly from starting the first charter high school in the state, a uh, startup charter school. Secondly, as I was the founding chair of the state charter commission, so I see a lot of trends. When there's a blow up in the charter world, we tend to see it. And one bad apple, it kind of blows up on all of us, or, or, or kind of gets on, on all of us, uh, our faces. So first of all, let me set the context. I'm a charter enthusiast, not a zealot. <laughs> I believe charters can be part of the solution, but are not the answer. I believe we pay a useful tool to leverage change, and I'll talk about that in a couple minutes. Um, second comment is, I believe the charter movement, now that it's been 11 or 12 years, really of open schools in California, is starting to enter a separate phase, what, what some of my colleagues call, and I call, phase two. And that has different components. One is, the standards are higher. We, these charter schools have to be better than they ever were. And what I mean is when I look at the charter schools across the state, and Heather alluded to this, there are some lousy charter schools. There are some average charter schools. And there are some, I submit, great charter schools. And I tend to, and I'm, I'm known for this at the commission, as being from kind of the tough love arm of the charter school movement, where I believe the charter schools that are not succeeding we deserve to, they deserve to be supported for a while, helped, technical assistance, but they do not have a right to exist. And if they're not serving students, and it may not be just the narrow measures of, of, of STAR and API, could be a broader measure. If they're not serving students, they do not deserve to, to continue. And so I really believe that superintendents and school boards are doing the right thing if they fairly look at and close charter schools. I just wanted to say that, because uh, I think that, that sometimes gets lost in the enthusiasm that some of us have for what we're doing. Uh, the second, so many have been closed, generally for financial reasons, not for educational reasons. The question was, have any of them been closed? Uh, there was a law that the number of us helped pass, AB 1137, which actually had a minimum standard so charters would not get renewed unless they met those. I thought it should be higher, and there ended up being some loopholes, so if the local schools are worse than the charter school, the school board doesn't have to close them. And parents liked that. Uh, because they didn't want to close the school because it was safer, but in a lot of areas, that to me, that's not good enough. The school is just better than the local schools. That's not good enough. If a charter has all this freedom, they should be performing uh, better, at, at least over time. Um, and then the last third of, uh, of the charter schools that are really doing well, I submit there are students that really need quality options, and I believe it is good public policy to throw public and private money, philanthropic money and government money, which is being done, uh, federal and state to bring the best charter schools and bring them to more kids of need. Now I know there's some folks in the room that come from different kinds of communities. My heart is the lowest income urban districts. The law isn't just for those people, 
for those districts, but that's where my heart is. I know that's where Aspire's heart is. That's who we're serving. So our, our schools, for example, average 70, 80, 90% free introduced lunch, 70, 89% first generation college, 50 or 60% traditionally underserved students of color, often 70 or 80% as well. So, so really schools of need. Um, and so I do believe that the phase two is very exciting time in education for a lot of reasons. And I see a few students in, from, from my class that have heard some of this before, and that is where these CMOs and other techniques are really changing the ability to deliver quality schools to districts and to students. And then that's the other part of phase two that I find very intriguing. A lot of us, maybe some of the people in the room, got in the charter movement really a little bit as iconoclasts, a little bit anti-bureaucracy, a little bit anti-government, and we wanted to serve kids, you know, teachers. And, and frankly, what I'm really excited now is if you look at our mission and part of Aspire's mission, although with different wording, part of our mission is to partner with districts to serve all kids. How we do that, we're still trying to figure that out. I'll give you two examples. In Oakland, Randy Ward, the state administrator, has specifically invited leadership public schools to open a school at his lowest performing traditional high school, Castlemont High School in East Oakland, for those that know it. They have three district schools, and they have a charter school. And in theory, we're supposed to work together and partner, and we spend a lot of time sharing information and professional development to help all boats rise in that community. And that's very exciting that charter schools now we're maturing and we're realizing it's not just about our kids, it's about all the kids. And I'm sure there'll be some lively questions about what about the kids in the district and how we work. But a lot of us are really thinking now, not just about our schools, but about the system. And so again, Oakland, he's really told us two things. Partner if you can, and if they don't want to partner, compete, serve those kids well, and if you outperform us, great, but we, don't, we hope to compete well. Um, and and just a couple more comments before we happy to hand it back to Larry and to the, to the, to the, to the audience. Um, so that partnership is very exciting. Another example of partnership is the charter school law in California, and charter school laws are state by state, so they're different in different states, is to really help all students and to share innovations. Yet I've, as I've watched for the last 10 years, Charter schools are up to here, districts are up to here. Where's their time and the forum and the medium to share best practices? And so I'm pleased to say, again, with Alameda County, Leadership Public Schools created the first annual symposium, best practices between districts and charter schools. Small, we had a goal of only 50 people. We got 150, so that was a nice start. I hope to see thousands in the future, and I hope it not to be run by us. I hope it to be run by universities and by counties and, and and the idea is, if a district's doing something great, I want to know it. And not just from the Broad Fellowship stuff, but actually, you know, the, the, the schools talking about it. And same thing for charters. If we're doing something innovative, let's share it. And that is just starting the last year or so. It just hasn't been happening. Now, there, there is some research, a professor up at Humboldt State, actually, Eric Rofus, one of the experts in the country on a particular niche of charter schools, district imp charter school impact on districts, he can kind of, and we can talk about if there's a question, how districts tend to respond to charters in large districts, small districts, and his research is, is he wants to renew it, but it, does, it does, definitely gives us some trends. Um, I think I'll, I'll stop there right after I say, say a couple things about um, LPS, Leadership Public Schools. Um, 
Well, actually, no, I have one other comment. I'm sorry, Larry. I have a few more minutes. Is that all right? Two minutes. Great. Two minutes. <laughs> so I'll do this. I will think I'll throw in this little uh, bone, and we'll see who picks it up and if we want to carry it a little further. Um, I believe that we're in a very exciting time, and for the superintendents and school board members, please bear with me for a moment. I believe the paradigm shift is and should be changing. I assume people will disagree of how school boards and superintendents should think about their roles. I believe the public schools and school boards are to guarantee quality education for their community, not to deliver it necessarily in a monopolistic way. Arnie Duncan's an example in Chicago, for example. There's a number of other superintendents that are doing this. Progressive superintendents and school boards should not see a diminution of their ADA as less power. Instead, I think they should see themselves as a portfolio manager. I can't think of a better, a better analogy. I'm sorry, it's, it's a commercial one. But the analogy is you can have union schools and contract schools and charter schools and big schools and small schools. Manage them on performance. If they're serving kids well, fantastic. If not, they don't deserve to exist. These kids' lives are too precious to not have high-performing schools. And so I see, and, and it's not a diminution in power, it's actually an increase in power because you actually, instead of micromanaging, you're managing performance and what schools survive. And so I just want to throw that out there, uh, and I can come back to Leadership Public Schools later if there's a question. Okay. Thank you, Mark. <clears throat> Thank you, Heather. I'm sure you have lots of questions for the panel. Uh, I have two questions just to toss out uh, that you need not respond to or respond to with whatever answer you want to provide to your own question. With most charter schools aimed at providing equitable access to better schooling for poor and minority children locked into low-performing schools, should charter schools using public funds be formed in affluent suburbs? Hmm. Why do most charter schools come to resemble public schools in teaching practices and curriculum? Those are the two questions. I'm sure there are plenty of others, so I will be the traffic cop in, uh, <clears throat> in calling on people. I will tr try to do that, but my advanced years sometimes uh, will for I'll forget people, so you'll have to jog me. Okay, first question. Yes, sir. So it seems to me one of the uh, big problems facing the charter movement is actually one of semantics. And uh, just in this last question, what's the difference? Why do charter schools tend to become like public schools? In the email, uh, there was uh, the advertisement that I got said that we talk about the difference between charters and public schools. And as long as we sort of uh, lump charters in a different category from public schools, we forget that charters are publicly accountable, publicly funded, open to all. And so it seems like we've got to stop using the word public school for district schools and uh, just change the language that we use. And I just wonder what you think about how to, how to go about doing that. I just have a quick comment, maybe Heather wants to join in, is that it's not a coincidence that both organizations have public schools in our name. It's not just concept, the law specifically says we're public schools. So we're, we're in public schools by law, we're also in spirit of all the reasons you said. We don't discriminate, we use lotteries, uh, we can't teach religion, we can't, uh, and we don't charge tuition. And so I think you're right about that, and it is a problem. As we worked with the superintendents and school boards and counties, we were always were talking about, they, often people were talking about public and charter. No, 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 it's district and charter. We're all public. And, and that, so I, I appreciate that. I'm going to add to that. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And just thinking a little bit about the relationship of that to Larry's 
question about why do charters look a lot like public schools. Um, Larry and David Tyak wrote the book on why charter schools look <laughs> like public schools, Tinkering Toward Utopia. Um, so if you want to really answer that question, go read Larry's book with David. Um, but I think it's also true that, especially in California, I can't speak as clearly about other states, but charters look a lot like public schools in California because California has A to G requirements. I, I, especially this is true in high school. They have A to G requirements, which mean if you didn't go to high school here, you have got to take four years of English, three years of math, and nah, 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 nah. And if you don't do that, you are not eligible for application to or admission to a California state school. So your hands are somewhat tied in terms of you're going to have to offer this curriculum. Um, you are bound to take the state high stakes tests, and these are based on California standards. So again, they're they're sort of constricting which ways you can go. Um, I'm perhaps setting off buzzers. Um, and uh, uh, oh, another way that uh, California has really sort of said charters are going to have to follow the route that other public schools follow is they have tied funding for textbooks to particular textbooks. So in order for me to to actually use funding I get for textbooks from the state, I must buy state-approved textbooks. So um, aside from much more historical um, reasons, in California there are very pragmatic reasons. They look a lot alike. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> Mark, let me just get some other people here. One, two, three. Please remember your number. <laughs> wow, number one. <laughs> Enjoy it. <laughs> Um, I'm a local school board member, and, and we actually don't have any charters in my district, and there's no threat of charters, and, you know, we're... So They're scary. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, because, you know, you sort of worry, oh, you know, what's going to happen? Finances. It's a funding issue, and yep. so on, and I know there are probably people here from school districts where it is, presents a financial problem. It does. Um, well, it could. Yeah. It doesn't but, have to ask. You have a question. But my question is, um, I had looked into, a while back, saying, gee, could we take our district charter? Uh, we're a small district. Could we take our district charter? Could, you know, what, could we convert? What advantages could we get getting out from all uh, underneath all this bureaucracy and so on? And based on the research that I did, it seemed like there wasn't the, there wasn't that much to be had in terms of bureaucracy to get out from under, and that the real benefit of being a charter is that. You can get a group of interested people who can get their hands on state funding and open up a school, and that, and then you can start it from scratch, and you can have, you know, a vision. You can, you have a better chance of not being unionized, you know, if you sort of pick and choose who you're hiring and run things in a certain way. But I was never able to really figure out, you know, if you're an existing district to say, oh, we want to start a charter school so that we can eliminate the union, you know, yeah, right. Um, so what are there are there bureaucrat you know are there things in the law that where what advantages do you have other than the fact that you can get your hands on the money to start something up and do something that you want and maybe have a vision that works? So many valuable things that you that you mentioned. So I'm not sure where to pick up the themes. Um, there's a couple ones that come to mind. And first of all, a technical uh, answer: districts can become charter districts, and they have. The commission just last week we approved another one, the renewal of one. And what I worry about with my charter hat on is: is it in charter in name only? We want innovation or performance, not just legal freedom from Ed Code, at least from my perspective. And, and so, so, but there are districts that have but gone. Ed Code stifles. 
I, I'm just saying, I agree. Yes. So if a district wants to do something new, fantastic, go all charter. But I don't want to, I, it's legal, but I don't particularly encourage it if it's just for finances or freedom or, or union bashing. That's just not where my heart is, uh, uh, my own editorial. Um, but you can, districts can go charter, and they have. Um, uh, another thing you said is, so what's free from the Ed Code? And this ties into Larry's question about why do they often resemble district schools? Well, two pieces of that. Um, not having the Ed Code gives us incredible freedom. Uh, and the challenge is, is that so many of us are spending so much time on structures, on processes, on hiring, and on kind of the operations of running a school or a district, that it's hard to really get to the classroom. And so what I'm thrilled at is we now finally have the capacity, not just to talk about curriculum, but actually what does a great classroom look like? What does the learning look like? And so, for example, we really focus on DeFore's professional learning community, the three questions. What do we want them to know? How do we know what we want them to, you know, that they know that? And what do we do if they don't know it? And not having narrow measures for that, but really having assessments not just of learning, but for learning and as learning. So it's powerful. District schools can do that, but often the contracts, not just the ed code, constrain them. So for example, the Goldberg thing. Of the, many districts, the teachers aren't allowed in their contract, or the district reserves the, the, the right to, use, to plan curriculum. Well, I, I don't want to speak for Heather, but, uh, but in, I can't imagine not involving teachers in curriculum. I mean, right off the bat, all of our curriculum was teacher-centered and teacher-created. We post it online, so if a teacher leaves, we still have it, and it can be used, and we polish it. So, so for us, uh, that's one example. The textbooks we buy. We have a leadership program that's very radical. You know, a lot of unapproved texts, and, and that's fine. Now we have to work with parents and make sure that it honors the community values and everything. Um, but they're bought with—they're not bought with state. Not bought, They're bought with state state funds, but not the not the restricted right. funds. Right. We have freedoms that districts shouldn't have, and maybe the districts should have this freedom. I submit, uh, if they're going to, maybe they should have that, and they can. Uh, um, another thing that is different is teacher involvement in hiring. I can't imagine hiring teachers without input from teachers and administrators and parents. And what we often find is that the district schools tell us we can't, and there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, for us, I want to hear the committee what they think and, and teach a lesson. Uh, another is job descriptions. Our teachers do all sorts of things. And we have to make sure that it's sustainable, um, but just things that they wouldn't normally do in districts, that it, either it's tradition or it's law, or it's contract. There's all sorts of things, or ed code. Uh, 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 are any of your schools union? Uh, uh, none of them are union, but they may be. The, the teachers have a right they to unionize. They, they can anytime they want, and we honor that. And, and if they want to, we will honor that, uh, uh, the, the process. Okay. Um, yeah. Let's go on. Uh, Sorry. Number two. Thank you. Yeah. Mine's more of a comment than a question. <laughs> I was, um, I'm doing a research fellowship here now, but I was an analyst of the U.S. Department of Education working on charter school issues. and. I just wanted to underscore this idea, this, the, it's a fact, really. Every state is a different charter context. Um, they, different people can authorize who's a charter school. There are different rules around who's qualified to teach. Um, and there were different reasons that charters were created in different places. So the context in California is really struggling with this strong union, strong um, centralization and bureaucracy. Um, 
and there seems to be fine charters are sort of in a middle ground i think of arizona as the wild west of charter schools because there's a lot less closed to us too and in wisconsin where i got my phd all the schools are chartered by the local districts and most of them are unionized because the union is so strong mm, sure. and actually the union has done a lot of work about rebranding itself as a progressive professional yeah. even new york city's got their own union yeah too. so it's very different in different contexts and i think that makes uh, sense because as we all know state is right? uh, education is such sure. a state and local issue um, that it just varies dramatically Barry, can I just a quick Bye. fact on that? Sure. About a third of the schools in California charters are unionized, mostly the conversion schools, uh, about a third of them. Um, and many of the states are different. Michigan's an interesting one. Universities can uh, uh, charter schools. Uh, mayors can, can charter schools. Museums can charter schools. And there's a number of schools in museums. And so they, 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 what that's called in the jargon is alternate authorizers. And the argument is you don't want to bottle the authorization to the one group that is, is conflicted the most about it. Uh, it's like it's like a Costco going to Walmart and saying, "Can I go create a wall a, a school you know next to you, uh, a, a Costco next to a Walmart?" And so there's a there's a systems question in some of the states. Okay. Yes, ma'am. All right. Um, there are a couple of comments I wanted to make. Do you know what uh, the average teacher pay is at charter schools, and is it lower than public schools? Because I have heard complaints that it is. And then the other question involves you're talking about um, all boats rising. Well, and this is anecdotal, but my own personal experience is I've seen really elite groups of parents form charter schools, and then people complain about the admissions process because there's no outreach to communities of color or underserved communities to let them know this charter school even exists. So what you do is you're taking the wealthiest students out of a public school, you're taking all the donations that used to go to that public school, putting sure. it in the charter, and leaving kind of the working class people behind. Right. So how would you react to that, and is that a phenomena that you see happen? Because I've, I've seen it locally in my own community happen. Yeah, you've got two questions. Go ahead. So, so the second one was about the um, elite the communities. The it's creamy. creamy. And the first That's one, right. again, was um, uh, teacher salaries. Oh, teacher right. salaries. Well, the one with the creaming yeah. is the complaint of the admissions yeah. Yeah. process, so, basically. So, so salaries, the research, this was a concern early on for the last 10 years is a number of ones. Is it going to be white flight? It hasn't been that. The research is really clear. Okay. Second concern is are we going to undercut teacher salaries who are already underpaid? I mean, and the answer is the research has not shown that. And in fact, I mean, it's a market system. If we want to attract the best teachers, I can't undercut the salaries. Right. Generally, in for example, we operate mostly in the East Bay and South Bay in uh, West Contra Costa. We start ten, fifteen thousand dollars higher than the district because they they're so ridiculously low there. In San Francisco and Oakland, we're pretty competitive. They're kind of mid-range. In cities that have parcel taxes, we can't compete. They get revenue we don't get. So in some San Jose areas, we can't compete. But across the state, salaries have not been undercut. Uh, the the hours may be longer, and the actually the year may be longer. So for example. Our year is longer, they teach fewer days of classes, 175 rather than 180, and that's legal in the charter world. But we do a, uh, 50 times more professional development. We have 15 days of professional development, three hours a week. So, so it may be more hours, but often it's about learning, not about necessarily teaching. The Heather, second question, you want to? Did, did you want to respond, Heather? No, Aspire is similar. I think the biggest point to your first question really is it's a market, and I can't get, I cannot, it goes for principals, teachers, everybody who I hire. They're not going to come work for me if I can't pay them competitively. The second question is a real concern of mine. I, sh I really just okay. join you and share you is that it's legal 
privileged communities, they're members of the public, can go to the charter law and operate public schools. Ironically, it's the public operating public schools, so you have to kind of discuss what's public about public schools. Um, is it the government running public schools or the public running public, public schools? I don't know, that's an interesting debate. Um, but my heart is really for the communities that have more need, but legally, every community has a right to do it. Just a quick follow-up, I'm sorry. Legally, though, is the, it, do charter schools need to reach some sort of threshold to show that they've, that they've reached out universally to a community as opposed to just people they know? The, the, the system that, that, that's supposed to ensure that is in the charter, there's a specific section, two of them, how do you uh, achieve racial and ethnic and financial balance, some phrase like that, and the district who approves the charter is supposed to look at that. And then secondly is, you cannot have preferential admissions with a few exceptions. You have to, if you have more students than you have seats, you have to have a lottery. Now, if you don't do outreach, then what goes in comes out. This um, is part of, but, I think, my earlier point about districts need, need to be in a place where the legislation is clear that they shouldn't be doing what you're suggesting is happening. However, if districts aren't paying attention, then yes, I'm, I'm sure you're right. There are communities in which affluent parents have set up schools for their kids. Thank you. Okay, uh, other questions? And could we uh, have kind of brevity in the questions? In the answers. Uh, okay. Uh, Martin, number two, number three, number four back there. And five over here, Deborah. Go ahead, Martin. Short, Martin. <laughs> I'm mystified. Because you're, uh, you, you, you say summer. that you, you can just get out from under all this bureaucracy and all this innovation huh. and all this, and this is really the solution to the public school problem no. to get out from under this uh, bureaucracy because that's really what charter schools are. I mean, that that's what they're supposed to one thing that charter schools do that public schools don't do. So why aren't kids doing better on, in charter schools on average? If that's the answer. <laughs> If that is the problem, and this is the answer, then the gains should be higher in charter schools nationwide. There can be losers and winners, but on average, if this is the solution, they should be doing better. And secondly, the scores should become higher, and the turnover rate should be lower. All of these things should be true if this is the problem, and none of those things is true. Okay. <coughs> Me to jump in there? Uh, <laughs> go ahead. I often go into the jaws. Um, uh, and is that Professor Conroy? Is that right? Conroy. Conroy, I'm sorry uh, for mispronouncing it. Um, we, and we do have your text in our, in our class. And, uh, that uh, won't help, Mark. I know, Mark. That won't help. <laughs> Answer the question. I will. <laughs> I just wanted to know that it's not just all pro-charter and that we really have some of the arguments there. A number of things I would say I, I is... I can tell you, I'm not anti-charter. I believe you. I, these are just the facts. Right. I believe you, and, and I'm seriously mystified by this issue. And 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 I am too. And there's a couple of ways I interpret it. Obviously, your your book on the charter dust up and the AFT analysis and the Hoxby analysis. I'm not a a a, a, a statistician and, and can really answer some of those issues. But in general, my sense is it depends how you cut up the charter pie and analyze it. And and I'm sure you can come back with a a a, a retort on that. But basically, charter schools, the reason they're not performing that well yet is it is really hard work. I have been there and done it at a single school. It takes a number of years before you have the social and financial and expertise and educational to really, I mean, I'm a teacher, but to run a business is really hard. And so the oldest schools in the country are eight years old, nine years old, uh, and so it takes time. I also think there are too many charter schools that are low performing that school boards, because of politics, bless them, can't close them because the parents won't let them. They should be closed. And that would change the spread. Um, 
And that's why I believe in CMOs, because the best ones, let's increase that, decrease the poor ones, and guess what? The whole supply, the performance will happen there. There's a final thing that I would submit, and again, none of these are the final answer, but just my perspective, is that probably a lot of people in the room believe these measures that you're actually referring to in your book are awfully darn narrow. Charter schools are known not, they weren't designed to, although our organization believes in the state tests and actually really aims to perform well on them, most charter schools are created not to perform better on the state tests. They're performed to meet their charter. Maybe it's ethics that they care about. Maybe it's a certain Latin curriculum. Maybe it's butterflies. I, you know, uh, and some of them, I don't particularly would send my children to them. Well, public schools aren't performing well on stage. I, 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 I agree. But I'm just saying charters are aiming for a different target often. Okay. I think okay. I just think that it's it's not the solution. I don't think the legislation was written to suggest that they are the solution. I don't think getting out from under bureaucracies, just like I don't think small class sizes result in better scores, just like small schools don't necessarily result in better scores. There is, and you know this better than I do. There is no single silver bullet solution. Charter schools are simply an opportunity for more and better things to happen for more kids. I I, I don't think it. You need to be mystified. It's complicated work. The, uh, the way I would respond to Martin is that the evidence on both sides is very mixed at best. But Martin's going to the very theory behind charter schools, which is autonomy, that's the getting away from it, innovation, it comes out of competitiveness, are going to lead to changes in organization, governance, curriculum, and instruction. Now, I think there's a lot of evidence that there are changes in charter schools around governance and organization. You can have uh, merit pay plans for teachers in charter schools and try to do that in uh, public schools very hard. You'll have very uh, creative and imaginative ways of organizing schools and governing them. But when it comes to curriculum and instruction that would produce student outcomes that are different, that's where it, it seems to fall apart, which from my point of view does not mean that there's something, uh, that there's a big hole in the roof or the foundation is really weak. It means that there, maybe there's something around that theory that is too simplistic, that somehow student achievement is responsive to simply having uh, teachers have more discretion. Uh, because as Heather points out, there's lots of things that force all kinds of public schools, including charters, to the mean, to the average. And that uh, makes it very hard. Number two here. Go ahead. Um, I had a, two questions, I'll be as quick as I can. Heather, you were talking about how it aspires schools, the teachers can move around and develop professionally, and that kind of leads to more teacher retention. I was wondering if you could give some more specific examples of what that looks like, because sure. I know that's a problem in mainstream or district public schools. Um, and I was just wondering if any of you know if there's any research on teacher retention in charter schools in general, not just specifically to one set of charter schools. Um, I cannot answer. I have not done research on the in general. Maybe Mark knows that. I, I, I haven't seen it. Uh, we generally look at uh, new organizations or new small schools as much as charter schools, but I haven't seen any great research on turnover. It's more anecdotal. And to answer your first question, um, examples of teachers moving up or over, I can think of a principal we have in an Oakland school who's very eager to get down to LA. His wife is from there, he wants to move there. I'm sure when we open our next Aspire Public High School in LA, 
will ask him if he's interested in getting down there um, uh, to run it. And he would be the perfect choice. He's already opened the schools. He knows the systems, yada, yada, yada. Um, Another example is a man who just had a baby at one of our Oakland schools decided to go part-time. There was no opportunity for him at that public, at that Aspire school in Oakland, so he ended up moving over to another school in Oakland that was five blocks away um, and had a, a found a part-time position there. Um, there are teachers, I think, just sort of on the rapidity because um, one of our teachers who was at one of our first schools and then at our second school, she's now a principal, and for her to have she's an extraordinary principal, was an extraordinary teacher, and for her to have become a principal at that pace is, is quicker than usual. Um, and we're lucky she's there, and we're lucky you know, that it happened the way it did. Uh, is that yeah. what you were looking yeah. for? Number three? Yes, ma'am. Um, I'm actually from the association. Oh, great. Perfect. And I have, um, I'm in the research and development um, section of it, and I'm not researching the support and development. And, um, a lot of the questions we're having as crunch time comes down to the compliance with NCLB. And how do you see NCLB affecting the overall original intent of charter schools and the long-term effects on the quality of charter schools? I can jump into that fray. <laughs> um, first of all, I don't actually see it changing charter schools much. We were founded with accountability and state tests and all those things in mind. And so really, it hasn't really affected us at all, except that can be controversial again for a moment. In some of the places where we go, uh, this, the districts are sometimes in denial of their performance for the lowest income students. It's been hidden. And so actually NCLB is shining a light on them in the, to the public and to us. And so they can no longer deny. And often they can either be defensive or invite us in to really help them with those students, uh, which we do well with. And um, so I, in some ways I see NCLB greatly helping on the other hand, of course, and, and hasn't really changed charter schools because we were already accountable. On the other hand, I think everybody in the room, or a lot of people in the room, would know more than I about AYP and, and its purpose and how that's going to be distorted as more schools, more public schools, charter and uh, districts, uh, fail, and what's going to happen with that. So that's, that's something that I, I don't have any expertise in, but the charter school side. Yeah, uh, the, the biggest manifestation I've seen of, of change is now we've added a new algorithm to thinking about how we measure our results based on their algorithm. So the state has one to calculate our API, and now we have one around the AYP. So we were already crunching data and looking at stuff and results, and so it's it's one more piece. But I can't say that it's I I have felt dramatic differences. What about the original intent of the charter and having you know how it's putting more restrictions and you know federal blanket regulations? and having that um, individual autonomy and... So the, the biggest, I mean, the only thing I can think about in terms of those kinds of re regulations, and I don't know NCLB backwards and forwards, but we've probably felt it some in teacher credentialing. You know, we've had to right. pick up the pace. We've had to talk much more seriously about um, yeah, the pace. You know, you've got to have it by now or we can't bring you back next year. And, and that's probably where charters have innovated. So there's so a number of us now who are larger, are like High Tech High. There's, there's four of us that work closely together. Uh, uh, Aspire, High Tech High, KIPP, and Leadership. We're all nonprofits and we all share information. And so High Tech High just created their own credentialing program and so we can actually work with universities to get our own teachers credentialed faster and we're looking at that. Doesn't the uh, fourth year of uh, No Child Left Behind require reconstitution? closure, 
uh, and so on like if that. You're in a, uh, if you're a, an improvement district. Pardon me? If you're an improvement yeah, district. Yeah, let's say that you move into the improvement district the first year. Right. By the fourth year, you got to do something. The state takes you over, something like that. Exactly. Have, uh, it's possible for charters to be closed under that provision. A absolutely. Exactly. And then there's, there's, there's other charter laws that are applying already, though. So the state laws and the renewal right. minimums, there's there's a number of different mechanisms that, that would close a charter school anyway. as well. And that's should be fair. Should be and it would seems to me that that might encourage even more uh, groups to try to form charters as they move into that third and fourth year. Or to buy time. Yeah, either to buy time or do something that's uh, radically but different. But it would fall under the dubious purposes. allow the yeah. district to have an opportunity to restructure or reconstitute its own school. Right. And they can do that now even without PI 4 or 5. That's correct. Yes. Right. That's right. So number three or four, or do we lose, we lose someone? Yes, John. So I'm just curious because some of the things I have read about talked about special ed classes and students and how uh, charter schools handled that population yeah. or didn't handle that population. I, I can address that one and probably Heather as well. You want to go first this one? Or want me to? So again, another fear of charter schools from the very beginning, aside from the ones I mentioned, was that charter schools would not serve the neediest students, particularly special ed. That has not been the case. They're within range of the special ed percentages in most districts. Some schools, like Gateway in San Francisco, is specifically designed for learning different students. Uh, and they're really trying to spread that, that knowledge and experience. Um, it really, in most charter schools, it's a non-issue because, pardon me for getting technical, you may, not, you may know this, but not everybody in the room, we serve as an arm of the district for special ed purposes. So for special ed purposes, almost 95% of the schools in the state are really no different than the district for special ed. The, the district keeps the federal money. The charter school pays the encroachment, the dipping into the general fund. We pay our fair share, often four or $500. Aspire pays $1,000 in one district per student. So we pay our fair share just like any other district school in exchange for the district taking care of all the special ed needs. Now that's been a real problem for some of us because we've had high costs and low quality. And some districts have said, well, we're sorry, Mark, but it's no different than our other schools. Well, that isn't good enough to me. And so actually a number of us are innovating. We plan to actually start our own, both Don Shalvey, kind of the leader in the movement, and myself, the Charter Commission, the Special Ed Commission, with the state approval, we're actually gonna be creating our own sub-SELPA and having charter students going to our own SELPA for the first time, we can actually ensure quality and make sure the cost is something that's not outrageous as it's been. And, and so at the same time, no one has to leave the districts. If the districts are serving the students well, but really I, I think the special ed has been somewhat of a canard in the charter movement. We are, we cannot deny any student for special ed reasons. The law is very clear on that. If there are charter schools that do that, I wanna know about it and get on them fast. And in terms of services, it's up to the district, not the charter school, in 95, 96, 97% of the schools. Almost none of the schools are their own LEAs or, or participate directly with their own liability and program with the SELPAs. So that's Except kind of a... That's the there end. are some, that's right. Okay. Uh, it's very unusual. That's why it's not 100%. Yeah. Uh, questions? Uh, Deborah. Yeah, this is um, for Mark and Heather as CMO <coughs> managers or managers in CMOs. How, how will you know if you're growing too big or too fast? Larry, I would love you to, to answer, how should they know? <laughs> okay. Go ahead. No, I'm not going to answer that first. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot, so I'll give you a chance. I'm happy to jump in. Um, how will we know if we're growing too fast? I suppose, I feel like we've probably hit that bump at various points even now. I mean, just in the last eight years, there have been times where 
literally, I, I think about the woman right now who's working in our as our payroll, and we aren't big enough to hire a second person, but she's not enough, um, and we're so so we're sort of at this awkward stage in that area right now. And uh, there was a time where we were really stretched thin um, on our uh, facilities. We'd had one person, so. I think you kind of we're constantly growing a little bit too big for ourselves, and because we're not prop, not for profit, and we can't just go ahead and hire somebody, um, and all of the auditing requirements around really staying in the black are are very strict. Um, I think we do get stretched a little bit thin, and then we grow a, enough to bring somebody else in to alleviate that that area. But, but your answer was suggest that you should grow faster. Create but of course, the trade-off to growing faster is then I don't have on the education side of the house. I don't have enough coaches hired to uh, provide the training during the summer, or I don't have um, an infrastructure in that geographic area where we'd like to go next. Yet, um, the timing of, of growth, as you can imagine, I I have to go to each individual district and say, I'd like to open a charter here. Here's what we stand for. Here's what our track record. They have to approve that. This isn't a process that. I necessarily have a whole lot of control over how long they take to deliberate um, that due process. So, um, growing faster wouldn't necessarily be the right answer. So, so leadership public schools has done a lot of thinking about this, um, and uh, we have a really wise board, um, folks, professors, and deans from Stanford, as well as a lot of businesses, AOL, McKinsey, Google, and we have a very detailed what we call green lighting system which approves where we research, where we submit charters, where we uh, get charters approved, um, where we um, cluster schools uh, for efficiency and quality and collaboration, and uh, where we um, grow in the future and where we open. And so it's a really five-step process. And uh, in general, um, we definitely need to make sure we have enough capacity to ensure quality. And so the advice we got is as much as you can afford it, we tried to really hire early. We had 20 employees, and we hired a senior HR director because people is the key to our success. Teachers, principals, etc. She was a national HR director for Pete's and was a principal 25 years ago. And so really um, an expert in growing people and numbers of people quickly. Uh, uh, but uh, but uh, for us, the real constraint is finding the right principles. It's a very challenging mix of experience, entrepreneurialness, <laughs> Right, it's the business political. Operation side, community development side. It's a lot of our, we, we, we've, we've experimented with you know, uh, new leaders, we've experimented with veterans, new leaders for new schools, that organization. And you know, they all have different weaknesses and strengths. You know, the veteran principals you know, come from DC or Chicago, they have never had to go out door to door and recruit families. Like, come to our school. I mean, they just, they don't know how to do that. You know, retail, going on the street, you know. Or Prop 39, for those who know, is a law that requires signatures to get a build, a state building, you know. And you need signatures before you open your school. And the districts, you know, understandably, won't let you on their campuses. So how do you get signatures of students and you're not allowed to talk to them? Well, guerrilla marketing. You gotta go to sidewalks, you gotta go to fairs, you gotta go to malls, you gotta go to churches, churches you gotta go to synagogues, you gotta go to, and so it's, it's very, you gotta go to um, community centers and summer programs and soccer leagues very entrepreneurial and so what really constrains us is finding the right principle that matches who we are but you also i mean like mark was suggesting it's not just your principle there is aspire has a similar sort of criteria it's a, a <coughs> rubrics that set out to determine 
where we actually will open a school. That is a little bit different, though, from the actual pacing of that, the opening. That's right, and then that's right, and and then our board has a couple times said, "No, go slower. We're not ready. Right. Quality, not quantity. Right. Do it right." And uh, that's hard because it creates extra philanthropic needs if you go slower. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing that constrains us is the facilities. So, so if we're you know yeah. because. <clears throat> We want to open up good schools, and if you don't know all your little pieces till the very end, it's very hard to open up a good school. And so many of the pieces are in flux that really sometimes it's better to go slowly. But so there's no, as you expected, no bright line on when we know we're going too fast. But uh, I, I don't have any wisdom on that. Uh, we have about ten minutes left. Uh, I want to uh, shift it just a little and see if there's any response to it. We haven't talked about money and funding. Uh, the Fordham Foundation, uh, Chester Finn uh, and his colleagues produced a very fascinating report just very recently that showed how charter schools were underfunded in every single state. And in, uh, in California, it was the difference was about $2,000 per student. This is because of categoricals and a whole bunch of other funds. And when I read that report, I was really struck by it for, on a couple, uh, for one big reason. I said, hey, Here's the beginning of a very interesting coalition that I hadn't thought about before because a lot of the charter supporters come from the uh, right side of the political spectrum and, and that's where the Fordham Foundation is and here they're talking about underfunded public schools, i.e. charters. Now isn't that interesting that maybe that if you can get the likes of uh, Checkerfin and others to talk about underfunded public schools in New York City, they still uh, haven't, uh, uh, the mayor hasn't done anything about the couple billion dollars that's supposed to come to New York City. But if there could be a political coalition around funding for both charter schools and others and public schools, that's interesting. I was wondering whether anyone would respond to that. Uh, Martin? I think, you know, I think the, the tremendous cost of the charter school movement is to bring a lot of innovative people and, and new, sort of new people that, that might support. And, but it's also true that that argument that the Fordham Foundation could be said that it's being used to say, chart, it's true that charter schools may, on average, not be, or be doing the same as public schools. But they're doing it for less. And they have they didn't make that argument, by did, the way. But they have made, but they have made. <coughs> uh, Yeah, well I don't want to go to motives. I'm just saying this no, is a possibility. They, no, but I think they're not going to be arguing I mean the same thing happened in Milwaukee, by the way. You know, that the right. voucher started at twenty five hundred dollars and the voucher's now fifty five hundred dollars. Hmm. And it, it, you're right, it brought in new people who are arguing for more money. But they're not going to argue for more money for New York public schools because the, I would say that the upside is to bring in all the innovators. The upside is bringing in new energetic people into the education system to try to do new things, to try to just energize the system. But the downside, I think there are two downsides. A, there's not total evidence on this, but there's some indication that it's leading to increased segregation. There is white flight, but there's also black flight. Those are the two groups Correct. that are moving into more concentrated, wider black schools. That's number one. Number two, the other downside, strangely enough, so the strange argument here, and that is I think that there is a big downside for breaking the, the teachers' unions. The big downside. And it's not, I don't think they actually have that much effect as the teachers. 
and Baldi and a member of the union. I don't think there's, but they have a tremendous impact politically in terms of oh, organizing yeah. around yeah. big issues. Issues that most of us favor, yeah. and most of the people in the charter school community favor, mm -hmm. right? including more money for school, right. mm -hmm. for charter school. So the point is, there are a lot of people in the charter school movement and voucher movement who are fundamentally, their main reason for doing this is to break down the teachers' Because, not because of anything to do with school, but because they're against teachers' unions' political force. I always listen to Terry Moe on this issue. <laughs> Terry Moe, and Terry Moe speaks I listen because he is at the vanguard of the thinking hmm. on these issues. And Terry Moe's writing about nothing but teachers' unions. Right. And it's, as a political force. So to me, that's a huge downside. If you start to break down the teachers' unions as a political organization, not as a teachers' organization, education will lose. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Can, can, I, can I make a quick comment on that, Larry? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So a lot of excellent points there. Um, the segregation one is true. A lot of us really only serve inner city schools, and there's, you know, in, in the Iron Triangle of, yeah, sure, Iron Triangle of Richmond, it's 99% African American, and we try to have more Latinos, and so we're about 30% Latinos, but you're right. It is more students of color now are going to charter schools. Um, on the union stuff, I have just a very interesting... The point is that they're going to more concentrated college That's right. Uh, that's right. And so some of us are trying to think about going to more privileged communities like Campbell we're opening up or San Francisco where there's more diversity. It isn't serving as many low-income students, but we're providing a service for society. That's where we're you know, do we serve more low-income students or do we have more diversity? That's what we're trying to to struggle with. On the union side, just a quick note, really interesting thing that people might want to look at, and that is Green Dot Public Schools in Los Angeles. Uh, it turns out that most charter school people are actually Democrats, and they're pretty fine with unions. And it, maybe there's certain people who are in the movement, but in general, they're pretty you know comfortable with unions. And he's really interesting. He created his own union. Didn't join UTLA. Created his own union affiliated with CTA. His job is not to bust the union. His job is to reform the union and make it more teacher and student friendly. And it's really interesting because he can't really be bashed. He's union. And it'll be really interesting to see how that dynamic plays out, where they are proud union members with a very progressive contract. It's worth looking at their contract. Higher pay, no tenure, involvement with curriculum, and lots of other worthwhile things that many of us believe in. So I'm happy to send you that contract if you're interested. Okay. Uh, how about you join me in the, to thank uh, both Mark and Heather. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.